Good morning. Nice to be here this morning. We're going to start with a verse in in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. First Peter 2 and 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed, who, bore, who himself bore our sins, his own body on the tree. The tree literally is wood, it's the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. I want to talk about the cross this morning. I'll speak. It's going to be basic this morning, very basic. It's all about the cross. And there's two aspects to the cross I'd like to talk about this morning. One is the fact that on the cross, Jesus was our substitute. Uh, he paid the penalty for our sins. And on the other side, he was our representative. And he put to death what the Bible calls the old man. The nature of Adam that we receive uh, by, by birth, Jesus put that to death on the cross. And to try to explain that uh, is going to be a major challenge. Uh, but that's important because that's part of the work on the cross. So if I want to talk about the cross and talk about the basics, that's, a, that's what we're talking We have to include that. So those are the two things we'll be talking about this morning. I uh, became familiar, Betty and I took a, a, a tourist trip to Russia last summer, and we went to a lot of Russian Orthodox churches. And you know, I'm used to seeing the Protestant cross. It's just the vertical bar and the cross bar. There's no, no Jesus on it. In the picture is he's risen, and it's a, a, a way of remembrance. But we don't worship that empty cross, but it does signify that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's gone. Uh, the Roman Catholic cross, they still put the body on there, and they call it the crucifix. And uh, uh, the corpus, the body, is on the cross. And they can either worship it, or it can be a remembrance. It can go, it can go either way. The G Russian Orthodox Church is different. They have the vertical bar, the stake, and there's a crossbar, and there's no Jesus on it, okay? And a lot of emphasis in the Russian Orthodox Church on the resurrection. He's risen. He's triumphed over the grave. But also, there's two other bars on the cross. You may have seen this, but there's a little bar. Just above the major crossbar is a little bar. And that represents the sign that Pilate put there, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So they remember what Pilate put on the cross. And you can picture this. And beneath where his feet would rest is another bar, only it's tilted. And it's tilted upward to Jesus' right. Okay, if you're on the cross, it's up, pointed up towards the right. And that is pointing towards the thief that repented. And where is he? Well, he's in heaven. That's why it's pointing upward. The other side is the left, and it points downward. And that's the thief who did not repent. And where's he again? He's in hell. Okay, that's the, that's the significance of the Russian Orthodox cross. And you'd see it on all their, the Orthodox churches, this cross. 
Uh, so it made me think a lot about the cross. And it, it uh, we were amazed on our trip, the fact that uh, with all the icons, they have a lot of icons. And uh, these are sacred, not just artwork, but pieces of, of sacred, uh, they were sacred items in their, in, their, in their churches. But our guides knew all the Bible stories. Here was the Bible for, for, for illiterate people. I mean, you, you could just take a picture and even the name of the church could be the church of the resurrection, okay? And th there'd be a, a, an icon, a, a painting suitable for that, and they could talk to it. They knew all these Bible stories. Um, so it made me think a lot about the cross, and that's what we'll be talking about this morning, the cross. So we'll start with some very, we'll just talk basic things this morning. We do know that there are a lot of emotional wounds to sin, uh, guilt, anger, anxiety, fear of death. Uh, all these are dealt with at the cross. Jesus took the penalty for all of our sins on the cross. He took your sins and my sins and suffered and paid the price the, for the debt before a holy God. From man's point of view, the cross is, uh, I mean, the Russian, the, the Romans, developed the crucifixion to perfection, to maximize the agony and public humiliation of death. That was the, and usually it was just slaves who were crucified or common thieves. Romans didn't get crucified. It was too gruesome. Yeah. It was a public, public death. And so uh, Pilate, uh, what's amazing is uh, Jesus had done nothing wrong, and Pilate brings him out. Uh, and, you know, behold your king. You know, what do they say? Well, crucify him. Crucify him. That was uh, their attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, give him the worst possible death. Crucify him. So for the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, uh, it eliminated a political competitor, and for the Romans that eliminated and made peace, okay, because you could just see the turmoil that was developing because of the teaching of Jesus and the attitude of the leaders. What's God's view of the cross? We all know Isaiah 53 and 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. That's God's view of the cross. And What saves is, is uh, we know he paid the penalty for our sins. Well, how do I apply that to my own self? And that was a big struggle for me when I, was, when I heard the gospel. Um, you know, there's two types of righteousness. One is what people call this passive righteousness, where somebody does something for you. Christ did something for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. And God says, well, he paid the penalty. You put your faith in him. And I'm going to impute his righteousness on you. All your sins are going to be put on him, and all his righteousness is going to be put on you. What have I done? I've done nothing. That's a passive righteousness. And then there's an active righteousness where you're always doing good works. What, what does the scripture say about the cross? We have to simply receive it. And, and it is a passive righteousness in a way. We've gotten something we've paid nothing for. That was the biggest struggle for me in coming to Christ. 
I don't know if you had the same experience, but I was raised to be a good boy, right? And most of us were raised to be good, good people by our parents. And so uh, the gospel is that we're not good. And someone had to deal with our sin so that we would be ready for eternity. And that was the issue. Are you going to rest, put all your faith for eternity? I mean, if you should die today, where will your soul be? That, that was a challenge I faced a number of years ago. If I would die, where would my soul be? And we're talking about something that will dwell with, be alive for eternity. Where will I be, heaven or hell? And basically, you have to put all your trust, your faith, in what another person has done for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, we have faith, and it's by faith alone, according to the word of God, that we're saved. By faith alone. Now, you, you drive your car down Indian Hill uh, Boulevard here, and you come to, a, uh, you see a green light, you see the green light. You have faith that the people who are seeing the red lights coming the uh, crossways are going to stop, right? So we live by faith. Uh, you go to the doctor, he writes out a prescription. You can't, you can't make sense of that prescription. <laughs> then you give it to the pharmacist. You trust both of them, right? You have faith in them, that what, and then you take the pill. I bet you never even think about it. You just do it, because you, you have faith in it. For me, the test of faith is this. The surgeon says, I have to operate on you. So you go in, and you, you lay in there in the gurney, and uh, anesthesi they all come, they, both the anesthesiologist and the doctor come in and talk to you. And then you say, okay, well, let's do it. Let's get it over with. And, you know, off you go. You're put under, and you have no control over what's going to happen to you. That takes faith. You have faith in the doctor. And so it is. I'm holding on to my self-righteousness, what there is of it. And God says, no, you have to trust my son as your savior. You have to let go and simply trust him. You have no control over it but his promises. And that's his faith. That's the faith. Faith is simply in his promises. You do that and you're saved. And why? It's because of his life, his death, his resurrection. You, put your whole, you entrust your whole self to him and what he's done for you. That's the cross. He's paid the penalty for your sins. Spurgeon says this, Ask any saved man to look back upon his own conversion and explain how it came about. You turned to Christ and believed on his name. These were your own acts and deeds. But what caused you to turn? God touched the spring of your will, enlightened your understanding, and guided you to the foot of the cross. And you trusted. So God was in it from beginning to end. But when you're in this process, you know, of being convicted of sin and being shown by God's word what it, the promises, what you have to do to be saved, you think it's all you making all this decision. But behind it, you see, is God. He's behind the whole thing. That's amazing. That's a basic. One person has said this, we have died to sins in the sense that our debt of sin and guilt was paid by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. 
we do not trouble ourselves with debts that have been paid. So that brings me to the next point I'd like to talk about this morning, and that is Jesus being our representative. <laughs> Before we're saved, we're kind of like sheep going astray. Uh, and you can picture this. Uh, you, you, you pretend you're a sheep and you're on a hillside and the shepherd's trying to get you up the hill because he knows there's green, real, really good green grass higher up. But you're halfway up and you see, oh, here's a shrub over here. I'm going to go eat this, right? Well, why should I climb this big hill when I could eat this right here? And you, you don't really even care what the shepherd is trying to do. You're annoyed by him, in fact. Uh, all you want is that shrub over there. Well, he has in mind something better for you. And, uh, and this is our nature, you see. We, we, we're born with a nature, uh, the old man, so to speak. Uh, that's the phrase Paul uses, the old man. We're born with this nature. And uh, it's really deaf, blind, dead towards God. God wants to do something. We don't, we don't want to respond to it. Uh, we, we have our own way of doing things. We know what satisfies us. And what you're teaching me is not going to be satisfying. And so we're like sheep. Well, the sheep aren't very smart. If they're lost, they can't find their way back home. Uh, can you train a sheep? Well, no. Uh, they're too dumb. And so it, so it is we have a nature that we're born with that really we can't over, turn over a new leaf and change. There has to be something fundamentally changed in our lives. And what the, the beauty of the gospel is, not only is our, our sins dealt with, but that nature is dealt with at the cross, that sinful nature. Now, in my case, there was 23 years that that nature had a chance to teach my flesh what to expect and what to do, okay, what was really going to make me happy. So even though now I've trusted Christ, and we'll talk a little bit more about this transformation that has taken place, I still have to deal with my flesh. It still has the desires that the old man had, even though the old man is dead. And many times I have to sit back and say, I have to reckon that dead. You know, the old Rick Markley, before I got saved, he's dead. There's a new Rick Markley that God has a gift he's given me, a new life in Christ. Paul could say that in Galatians 2 and 20. It was beautiful. I have been crucified with Christ. I mean, he identified himself with Christ in his death. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the transformation. It's beautiful. What a gift. Not only your sins are pardoned, but you have a promise of a new life that now can listen to God, now can communicate with God, have fellowship with God. He can speak to us and we respond to it. We're, you know, we want to respond to it. I'd like to turn now to another verse. Uh, last week there was a baptism. Uh, I'm sorry, we missed it, uh, but it's uh, verses that are normally shared at a baptism are in Romans <laughs> chapter 6. I'd like to just look at that for a minute. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 and verse 3. Or do you not know 
that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And we'll just pause there. So Paul, it's very interesting here because he's, he's, he's putting out a principle, and he says this principle I'm putting out is that you are united with Christ when he died on the cross. When he died, your old nature died also. And, he's, and he presents this and saying, this is... The, picture of baptism. This is what baptism is supposed to represent. So you have the folks here being baptized and uh, one after you know, the, the confession of faith, um, the person doing the baptism will lower the person into the water. Halfway? No. All the way. To represent into death. It's, it's a, he's trying to make a picture. This is a picture of what has happened spiritually. We're identified with Christ in his death. And Jesus comes up out of the grave, okay? And so we come out, and the impact on us is that we walk in newness of life. That's the picture of baptism. That's what it's, what it's all about. It's a picture of this fact we're united with Christ in his death. Now, so, now knowing this, uh, knowing that the old man has been dealt with and now we have a new life, the question is, do we still walk like we used to walk. That's the challenge. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Duke Reynold III of Belgium. Uh, Duke Reynold III uh, in Belgium lived in the 14th century, and he was morbidly obese. Uh, he had a younger brother, Edward, who took advantage of him and usurped the throne of this dukedom. And, uh, but he, he didn't imprison him. He put him in a, in a room in the castle that had a standard-sized door, standard windows, and said, all you have to do is come out, Reynold, and you can be the duke again. He was morbidly obese, so he didn't fit right away. So Edward said, told everybody, I didn't imprison him. He could come out anytime he wants to. But he couldn't fit, of course. And every day, Edward was feeding him delicacies, sweet things, candies, to keep him fat. And what did, in spite of that, Reynold kept eating and eating. And 10 years later, he died. Okay? Uh, but he had the chance to get out of the prison he had put himself into. But he, he had no self-control, you see. And that's, part of the old nature when you don't have no self you have no self control over certain things the gift is you put some things to death and you know that we do have uh, some besetting sins each of us have these things that are known only to us but you, you have these things and yet God has given us the power through his word and the, the, this new life that he's promised us to deal with those things Augustine 
in the fourth century um, was walking along and this woman saw him. It used to be her, his mistress. And she said, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And he started running. He says, yes, but it's not me anymore. He's not the same me. Okay, the, the me has changed, you see. That was the sense he had to be done, put to death the old things and go for the new things. One last verse we'll read here. Well, let's read three verses. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. <clears throat> Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And that was the problem Reynold III had, you see. Uh, he let sin reign in his desire for uh, the, the sweet food. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And he starts to hint here at an attitude we need to take towards the old man. Hence, the hint here is in verse 13, present yourselves to God. And he says, you, you reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. God reckons you dead to sin. You should do the same thing. So don't keep yourself imprisoned here, but live this way. And the hint is present yourselves to God and, and the parts of your body, your legs, your arms. Let's use those for God. That's his hint. But let's go over to some more hints. We have a few more minutes. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're look at, going to look at a few more hints on walking in a way that we can reckon the old man dead and the new man alive unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ver the, we'll read several verses here, but the first one is 9. And these are simply suggestions that Paul is making in his letter to other believers, and we can say he's speaking to us as well. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 5 and 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So you're into archery bows and arrows. So you take that bow and you pull the arrow and you hold the bow. I'm not an archer, obviously. I pretended when I was a kid. Pull it back, right? And where you aim it, where you let go is where the arrow is going to go, right? So he's, he, has, he has an aim. That's your aim. And he said, make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So that should be our aim to be well-pleasing to him. That's the first, the first recommendation that God makes in, in what Paul's writing here. What's your aim? Is your aim to be Reynold III and have more sweets? Or is it the aim to get out of the prison and, and live for God? You see, what's your aim? What are you aiming at? What's your aim, in your, what's your aim of life? A lot of you are young, young people. I'm 72, I'm getting near the end. My aim has brought me to where I am today. 
And I have no regrets. I am thankful for where I am today, by the way. Uh, but Paul said we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. That's the goal. What does it take for you to have that aim? If you are saved, you see you have the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to have that aim and to achieve that aim. Hmm. But are you going to be like Reynolds III? Who knows? So let's look at another verse. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. At the judgments, this is the bima. Um, we know that, for example, the pavement uh, where Pilate judged Jesus is, was, is considered a bima. But what Paul really has in mind are the Olympics, the Isthmian Games, they were called. That's what he has in mind. And we must all stand before and any athlete who participated, it could be the marathon, it could be wrestling, it could be any of these activities, uh, had to do these things within the rules. And uh, there were judges seated there at the Bema who made sure that you followed the rules. And if you did uh, win, you were, uh, uh, a laurel wreath was placed on your head as a symbol of victory, a laurel wreath. And this is what Paul has in mind. We're running a race, so to speak, and he's picturing the races. We're running a race, and we're racing, running according to the rules. Uh, in 1980, I think it was Rosie Ruiz ran the Boston Marathon. Uh, Rosie uh, took the subway, and they found out. Uh, she won, but they, they <laughs> she was disqualified, so the next person got the, got the award, uh, but that was in the Boston Marathon. <laughs> we, we run according to the rules, okay? And you can have the biggest Sunday school, you can have the biggest church, right? But if you've done it in a way, an ungodly way, you know, obviously there's no reward for that. That's what he's saying here. But the bima of Christ, and I think he's setting forth the reward. Uh, he's, he's picturing us as the competitors, and uh, at the end, there's a reward. Um, the losers weren't whipped. Right? It's all a, the deal is reward at the bema of Christ. Might be a lot, might be little, but there's no punishment. Punishment is not involved in the bema of Christ. It's reward. And so he said, and I think that's a motivator. I mean, that's something that makes me want to be less Reynold III and more the new man, you see. Uh, it's a motivator. One person has said this, it cannot be too strongly emphasized that the judgment is unrelated to the problem of sin that is more for the bestowing of rewards than the rejection of failure. And the beautiful thing is that in Revelations, uh, 19.8 we read, she was permitted to be dressed, this is the church before Christ, she was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen, for the fine linen is the, are the righteous deeds of the saints. So we have salvation as a free gift, and we have rewards as a free gift. We get 
a crown, different crowns, and that's, that's for a different message, probably by a different person. But the, 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 there are different crowns, and the Greek word is Stephanus. So if your name's Steve, congratulations. You're the crowned one. But that was of, uh, uh, for achievement. There was a different crown for royalty, the diadem. And that's what the, the word used in Revelation. He, he was crowned with many crowns. They were, he was a, they were diadems, you see, what a, only royalty could wear. So there's different words for a crown. But this is a crown of achievement, and that's what the Lord bestows at the bima. And he gives them freely and generously. And that's a motivator, so to speak, to take advantage of what has, God has done for us on the cross. Go for the, go for the rewards. I have no, you know, I've mentioned this to other people, and they said, oh, you shouldn't do that, you know. And uh, I say, it's there. Paul keeps talking about it. The crowns, the rewards, they're in place for the believer who's serving him, who's using their hands, their feet, their minds to serve him as opposed to pleasing themselves. It's reward. You have the opportunity before him when he presents this to lay it at his feet. That's, that's your opportunity if that's the opportunity you want to take advantage of. But the point is what, what's motivating Paul is have the reward. I think that's great. I have no problem with that. <laughs> so that's verse 10. Let's go down to verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because of, we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the love of Christ compels Paul. Uh, uh, Brother Ben once uh, pointed this out to me, that this was the love of Christ for us, not so much our love for him. Interesting perspective. I had never really thought about that. You know, we, we do things out of love for him because he's done so much for us. But the love of Christ, and Paul is grappling with the fact that he has a message, the gospel message that God has entrusted him with, which is bigger than him. And he has this message, and he has to deliver it according to the rules. He can't be like the, those uh, uh, false apostles and uh, the blowhards in Corinth who were pretending to be apostles. And he sarcastically calls them super apostles. You know, I'm not inferior to the super apostles. Hyper apostles is in Greek, a hyper. Uh, and later he calls them the false apostles or, or the pseudo apostles in Greek. And you know what those words mean. But he has this treasure now. He has to go according to the rules and present this treasure. And it's a burden on his heart. And, but the love of Christ toward him compelled him to take on this work. Magnificent. I mean, he had, a, he had a ministry that took his whole life to fulfill. And let's just look at it since we have a, a few minutes. Verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, you might have a ministry... Um, I know Brother Magdi has the ministry of, of, of the, prison, the, the prison ministry, and it's something that takes a lot of time. You probably give a lot of thought to it, 
day, night, day, night. You don't take weekends off. You think it's your ministry. It's something that God has entrusted you with. Uh, some of you, well, none here, but our Sunday school teachers probably feel the same way about their Sunday school classes. It's a ministry. So you pray for those kids. Um, and I look over, most of you have a ministry. Uh, uh, but it's something that you will think about outside of Sunday morning, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a ministry. You're a servant, so to speak. You're saying to God, I'll be your servant. I'll have this ministry, and I'll serve others by doing this, which will build them up, uh, uh, lead them to Christ if your gift is, is evangelism. It is a ministry. And so, what, so Paul is going to explain here what his ministry is. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So he has the ministry of reconciliation, and he also has the word of reconciliation. That is, he's going to preach it. He's going to preach it out. And that's, that's a treasure he has, and he's burdened by it. Verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So right there, if there's anybody reading this letter who has not yet been reconciled to God, he's encouraging them, be reconciled to God. I'm giving my life to get this word out. It's important. The love of Christ compels me. My aim is to please him. I'm using all the instruments of my body, head, arms, legs, my back if I have to be whipped, anything, I'll give it to get this word out. It's important. And the message is this, and it comes down to us through the ages. Be reconciled to God. Eternity is in the balance for you. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to trust him as your savior or not? And if you do trust him, he says, okay, that old self is now going to, has been crucified. I'm going to reckon that dead, the old you. And now you have a new you. Let's build that up. He's going to be an ambassador for Christ. What does that mean? We know he's going to be a minister of Christ. He's going to be a preacher of Christ. This reconciliation, this gospel message. What does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? Well, what it means is that you get your orders from him, right? And you're representing him in a foreign country. That's an ambassador, and that's what he's calling us to do as well. But he, he had to do this. See, he says, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Uh, I feel for Paul in, in, the, in these words because he, he has a sense that God can use him and is using him. And so often we're so trapped in our own regrets. Uh, and, uh, circumstances are one thing. I mean, you might have uh, a job or something that won't enable you to be an evangelist, for example. Or you can't be here uh, to, to preach the gospel or everything, you know. Uh, but you have a job. Well, even in that job, you see, God can use you. You can be an ambassador for Christ. Are you going to feed the old man, or are you going to feed 
the new man. Where you are, you can be an ambassador for Christ. That's the point. In the last verse, verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is going all the way back to the fact that the cross, our sins were dealt with. And God has promised, I'm going to take Christ's righteousness and impute it to you. Take your sins and guilt and put those on Christ at the cross. That's what I did. And that's his promise. That's reconciliation. It's dealt with once and forever. I mean, that's so fantastic. I can hardly believe it. That's the gospel message. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I think we sang a hymn this morning. That was every verse. He loved me and gave himself for me. Yeah, let's praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for this time to remember the cross. We know the shame and the pain that the Lord Jesus went through. But Lord, we need to reckon ourselves dead because he died reconcile ourselves alive to God because he lives. We just pray for your, your blessing on this message. If any, here, anyone here is, does not know the Lord as their personal Savior, pray, Lord, that they would deal with it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.